because I want to talk to you today about when your miracle needs a miracle. How many of you know that you are a miracle? And when you yourself realize that you're a miracle, you won't go overwhelmed when things don't go your way when it comes to situations and life because you are a miracle. But there are times when God gives us a miracle, whether it's the miracle of salvation, the miracle of healing, the miracle of guidance, protection, the miracle of financial provision, but your miracle will be attacked. And there will be a time in all of our lives where our miracle will need a miracle. I get this thought out of 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. Let me give you the backdrop of the story because you've got to understand the story to understand what I'm talking about when I say your miracle needs a miracle. It says in verse 8, Now it happened that the day that Elijah went to Shunem, when there was a, a noble woman there, and she persuaded him to eat some food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there and eat some food. Now it's not hard to get a preacher to eat, by the way. That's real easy to do. Just fix him some food and say, come on, he'll come, he'll come if you feed him. And, and that's how women, that's how you get men too. Just feed them, they'll come. And anyway, that's an, I'm not a single, but I just tell you, that's how men should, uh, that's, if you want a man, just feed him. Okay, let me move on. Where was I? Let me get spiritual again. I got lots of jokes, lots of jokes. And then she said to her husband, now look, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed in there for him and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there. This is the prophet, the prophet Elijah. He came there and he turned into the upper room and he lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shulamite woman. And when he called her, she stood before him and she said to him, say now to her, look, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my people. So he said, what is it then to be done for you? And Gehazi answered, notice she didn't answer Gehazi answered, the prophet's servant. She didn't, she didn't give a request. And the prophet's servant says, well, actually, she has no son, and her husband's old. He's, he's old. And so he said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you're going to embrace a son. She said, oh, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. She's amazed that he knows the desires of her heart. But the woman conceived and bore a son. When the appointed time had come in which Eliza had told her, and the child had grew, verse 18, and it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to the servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knee until noon and then died. This is the miracle child. God gives this woman the desires of her heart. The miracle dies. The miracle's lying in her arms, dying. And her miracle needs a miracle. Friends, your miracle that God has given you, there will come times in our life where that miracle that God has given will need its own miracle to come back to life. Let's pray for that. Lord, thank you that you are in the miracle working business. And Lord, I pray that my words will fall to the ground. Let your words just penetrate our hearts and change us and challenge us and encourage us today to build a place for you, not a crisis room, but a friendship room, not a panic room, but a friendship room. In Jesus' name, and all God's children said,
Amen. Now think about this. This child has come to a man like Abraham who's well past his childbearing years. He's old. As a matter of fact, his, his alligator shoes are really his feet. He's really that old. And he's not getting any younger. And now he gets this miracle child. The Shulamite woman doesn't ask for anything. And the man of God says, what do you want? And she tells her, you're going to get this miracle. You're going to receive this miracle. Now the miracle comes. I read the story. The miracle dies. How old is the child? Hebrew authors tell us that that child couldn't have been older than 12 years old. So here he's 10 to 11 years of having this miracle child. And suddenly and unexpectedly, the, di the child dies. It's a tragic story if you think about it. It's unbelievable. The miracle of God now is dead. It happened. How, how do you get to that? Verse 20, this woman brought to his mother uh, the child and rocking in her, her knees until noon and died. Verse 21 says, though, she laid him on the bed of the man of God. Now, where was that? It was the chambers. It was the chambers that she had prepared for the man of God before she needed the miracle. Before she needed the miracle, she was to take the boy to the place that was prepared before the battle came. This place was prepared before the trial came. The Bible says she called to her husband. She says, give me a donkey. I'm going to go to the man of God and I'll come back. Verse 23 says, the husband said, why are you going? It's not a new moon and it's not the Sabbath. And she said something amazing. She says, it is well. She saddled up the donkey and she met the man of God and she went to where he was living at Mount Carmel. And when Elijah saw her from afar off, he said to his servant Gehazi, he said, look, it's the Shulamite woman. Run to her and ask her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And look at her answer. It is well. Her boy just died. But something inside her says, regardless of what's going on, it is well. She summoned Elijah to come to the house. And when he arrived, the child was dead. Elijah put his hand upon the child's hand. He put his eyes upon the child's eyes. And the Bible says the child's lifeless body, the flesh became warm. And the scriptures say he opened up his eyes. The child is a miracle child. The miracle now dies. And now she needs a miracle for this miracle. It's something not as simple as just kind of getting this miraculous healing, this miraculous gift, this miraculous miracle. Sometimes that miracle needs life and it needs breath so it can continue on. But we need to understand something about this. Listen closely. Something with the miracle, a miracle will always find a way to be attacked. It will always find a way to be attacked. Maybe through depression, maybe through sickness or any other type of thing, financial difficulty, marital conflicts. But the miracle of God that God gives a person will always be attacked. You have to realize the miracle is not immune to an attack. Many people, they come to services like ours and they receive a miracle in their emotions, in their health, in their finances. That's what the testimonies are all about. Not just to text them, but we'll put you on camera for our television channels that are coming, our, our, our streaming platforms. So your testimony can go around the world and impact lives. But many people, they receive a miracle and then the enemy comes before they walk out the door and strikes the miracle. Oh, that wasn't real. That was just emotions. That was just the way they sung those songs. That was the way Joey preached. That was the way Jennifer ministered. And the miracle suddenly gets attacked, mostly through our own stinking thinking. 
mostly through our own negative confessions. But the miracle is never immune to the attack. Verse 8 says, Elijah would pass by this place called Shunem. In other words, he would be on his route doing what men of God do, going and doing godly stuff. And in the Old Testament, think about this, many of you don't know, but in the Old Testament, you could be around the prophet of God. If you were gracious and lucky to be around Elijah, calling fire from heaven, around Jeremiah, around Ezekiel, around Daniel, these prophets of God, what a miraculous thing. But in the Old Testament, you could be around them, and being around them meant the presence of God was there. Now we have a better covenant, the New Testament. No longer do we have this old mentality of, I have to be around them. We now have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Now we have the biblical right to say, greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have that luxury. Only the men of God or the women of God that God put his hand on had the presence of God. That's why you'd have to go to the priest. That's why you would have to go to the man of God. And this woman knows that. She knows that Elijah represents more than a man. He represents the presence, the presence of God. And that's why it's important because Elijah would go by where this woman and her family lived called Shunem. Elijah would stop by the home and he would begin to visit. And verse 9 says, the woman says to her husband, wouldn't it be great if we, we build the holy man of God a place where he can come and stay when he passes by us regularly? Let us build a chamber for him, verse 10 says. So whenever he comes, it'll be there for him. Let's build something for him. I tell you that because there is a world of difference between visitation and habitation. Visitation and habitation. Visitation happens occasionally, but habitation literally takes place constantly. We live in a time where God has many houses, but he really has few homes to live in because many people treat him like a visit. Come and visit me when I'm in need. Come and visit me when I call on you. Come and visit me only when I'm going through my depression or my struggle or my issues. Only come and visit me. But when the kids are good, the bills are paid, the car's not broke down, and everything's hunky-dory, I am not going to a place of habitation, but I'll see you after summer's over. Many people treat God the same way. Visits. It's like having a weekend visit with a child because you've gone through a divorce and you've got the child this weekend and they got them this weekend and this is how many people approach God. But this woman refused to do that. She says, no, no, I don't want him just visiting. I want him when he comes by. I want him to have a place to stay. And that's where there's a difference between houses and homes. You can buy a magnificent house. You can spend millions of dollars. You can have the most grandest things in your house, but only God Almighty can give you the strength and the peace to have a home. He can give you a home. But we are designed, and you and I have been created, not only for worship, but we were created for friendship with God and communion with God. But that's been misunderstood in the modern church. It's been misunderstood in the church today because many people treat God as a service, as a church experience, and not as a way of life. And you and I were created not only to worship God each and every day, but we're created to have relationship and friendship with Him. Communion means closeness with him that before God gave Adam a wife you have to remember he established fellowship with Adam first 
And many times we think of that as a, a, a line of, of things to do list. God, family, uh, business, work, and then my hobby, and blah, 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 blah. But that's not how God wanted it. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe God established something in Adam first, a, a full relationship, a full panorama of everything this wonderful relationship could be. See, that's the Hebrew language. If you ever study that God language, Hebrew, and that's what many scholars tell us in heaven will be speaking uh, Hebrew, but I believe it's either Hebrew or Spanish, one or the other. Hola. But I think it's important because many people don't understand the Hebrew language is not like the English language. The Hebrew language is like a wagon wheel, or let's break it down to Stockton terms. It's like some of those cars that you see, the cars beat down, but the, the rims are like gigantic on the car. You ever see those? We call them in the neighborhood scrapers. They got those scrapers and they got, they got like 27 inch rims and it's like a little Yugo. And they got these gigantic rims. But those rims, if you think about them in these terms, they have a center hub. And then they're held together with the spokes. Without the hub, the spokes can't turn the wheel. That's God's relationship. It's like the center hub of a wagon wheel, of one of those wheels that you see. And that relationship is not this, this, this. That's the central theme of our life. Then those spokes represent family. Those spokes represent different areas of our lives. And sometimes the spokes get broken. Sometimes one spoke needs a more attentive than the other spoke, but we're never to lose the hub. We're not to categorize it. We always got to go back to the hub. And that's what God is establishing. He's establishing friendship, not rules, this, 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 this. He's establishing friendship and relationship. And that's what we are designed and created for, to have relationship with God before we can ever have it with one another. In the midst of making that statement today, instead of establishing relationship with God first, many people do the opposite. They establish a relationship with other people before they establish a relationship with God. That means they establish intimacy with human beings instead of establishing intimacy with God first. And then they try to fulfill the intimacy with a person, a, a situation, a relationship, and not having that capability to have intimacy with God. They try to put it on somebody else who was never designed, and they're not capable to carry that hub because they are a spoke, and they're not the hub of the wheel. They're not the hub of the wheel. And then we try to get some poor man, some poor woman to become something that we can, and we end up getting mad at them because we're expecting somebody to be and do something that only God can be to us. But it's so true. We try to establish it, and then they let us down because they're not godlike as we want them to be, and they're not as, as intentive as they want us to be, and they're, they're, not, they're not really relational as we want them to be. Don't you know, women, you'll never understand a man because they're not that smart. <laughs> There's like a nothing box for men. I can be at home, and if I'm not reading or reading something and looking at something, I mean, the TV can be on. And, and Jennifer and I have been 20 years, almost been married, and she'll be like, you know that's loud, the TV, turn the channel. I'm like, oh, there's TVs on? I don't even realize it. I'm not paying attention to it. But there's a difference between men and women. There's a big difference. I know society in the 21st century says there's no difference, but believe me, there's a difference. We'll, not, we'll never understand men, women, because God made them while we were asleep. 
Adam went to bed single, he woke up married. Don't you go to sleep when God's working, man. You might wake up and get hooked up. And that's the greatest secret of marriage. It's really intimacy with God. If I had to hear another minister talk about do services on intimacy, I don't know about you, but when they talk about that stuff, it's gross. That's a plus of connect groups. Do that stuff on your own time. The minister shouldn't be getting up talking about, man, this kind of intimacy, and this is what you need to do with her, and this is what you need to do with him. Ha! Preach the gospel. Call heaven beautiful, hell hot. Stand up for Jesus. Tell him, serve the Lord. Honor God. Well, you don't serve God, but you honor God, and God will honor you in return. And there are times and places for that. But I'm saying that for a reason. If you don't establish that first, there's not a guy who gets up in here with a stool and a cup of coffee sitting down and engaging with you. He can engage until the cows come home. If you don't have this issue dealt with first, you will put unrealistic expectations on somebody because intimacy is into me you see. God says, into you I see and I'm going to make you better because I've got my first time with you and you alone can somebody praise the Lord for that today and I think that's the secret I think really that's the secret to a successful relationship with one another but really in marriage is intimacy with God opens up intimacy with the other person that's important to know and there and it satisfies us in such a way because we're not putting impossible expectations godlike expe expectations on people on our spouses that only God can fulfill you know God has a plan for our lives a specific plan there's a plan and there's a place that only God can fill and God can satisfy but this world has been predicated upon this lie that you can only do these things and these things and if you don't do those things God's mad at you he's angry with you he's ready to take you out but that's not the love of God and that's not who God is but this lie of the world that says you can be satisfied and you can be fulfilled without making God a priority in your life there's nothing further from the truth nothing in the world satisfies like the living God himself and you'll never develop that with with other people you can't develop intimacy with God with people. You can get introduced to God among people. You can get saved, what we call born again, uh, with God among people. You can worship God among people. But to become a friend, it's you and God alone. And that's important because many of you don't like being alone because it really deals with yourself. And that's where God says, no, I want to deal with you. The good, the bad, the ugly, I want all of that. But many times we want to put on our best face and put it forward. Plastic surgery is a multi-billion dollar industry because people want to do something. They want to, they want to enhance features and they want to cover up their flaws. So they spend billions of dollars and they have some doctor carve up their face or their body like a steak to get them to look like somebody on a page that if you really look closely, that person doesn't even exist because they're so airbrushed, they're so made up, and they don't even look like that in person. But what do we do? Because we don't want people to really see us. We say, hack me up, carve me up, take this off. I want to get back to my original weight, seven pounds, two ounces. Well, that's not reality. This is reality. See? See, see? See, senor, see? It's not that pretty. 
But there's something to be said about having God as a focal point of your life. Not a prioritizing, but a hub. A hub. Because there are some times when those spokes take a lot of time. Because some spokes are more needier than other spokes. Notice I didn't say folks, I said spokes. So next time that somebody's really needy, say, you are such a spoke. But think about this. If, if what this woman is doing, it really shows us a part of our life that we can be doing. She develops this intimacy with God because she builds this man a room because it represents the presence of God. And this woman, she's tired of the visitation and she wants more. She says, I want to do something to make him stay. She says, I'm tired of just coming by and having God visit me. She wants to make a habitation, not just visit. She doesn't want that anymore. She says, so I can, I can just fix this little room up. I have this room upstairs. And if I can just maybe put a bed in there and a candlestick in there, and maybe if I and do this in there. Maybe he'll come by and he'll stay. He won't just visit, but he'll stay. The only reason the room exists is not for other people to come over and stay, but for the man of God to come over and stay, for him to be there. Not just visitation, but habitation, an area totally dedicated to him. But we make God that priority. When we make him the hub of our life, God stops by. And he starts to have supper with us. He starts to talk to us. He starts to help us and encourage us. And when you wake up in the morning and you spend that time with him, or you have a portion of time before you go to bed to pray and to talk to the Lord and to meditate on God, there's nothing he won't do for you. Not because you're asking, because you've made him the hub, not just the spoke. You're making him the real deal of your life because it's really all about friendship. Everybody say friendship. It's really about friendship. I watched a preacher the other day on television. He, I got the biggest kick out of him because everything he said, he was like, and say this with me, you know, and say friendship, you know, you say friendship, and then he'd go, and say this, and then his words got so long, they were like full-on paragraphs, and I want you to say the Declaration of Independence, All right, and they was like, oh my gosh. He was wearing the people out because every time he'd speak, he'd say, say it with me, and I'm like, oh no, we don't want to say it with you anymore. But I think you can say friendship, say friendship. That's what God's after. God's after friendship. Notice the Shulamite woman. She never asked for anything. She didn't ask for a son. She didn't sit there with this motive. That's important. She says, I'm going to build a dedicated chamber so I can ask for something. No, she didn't say that at all. She says, I'm going to build a dedicated chamber so he'll come by and stay. Not to ask for a son. She didn't do that. It was an issue of friendship and communion with her. It wasn't an issue of wanting to be around the place where, where she can get this or get that. She wanted to have a place where the presence of God was. Not doing to get. But many, many times when we're immature in our belief in the Lord and we're just coming up to a realization of who God is, we really live in a motive-based mentality. We start doing to get. I know my children do that. My children start doing things because they know daddy will give them things. But there's a problem. My children are young. That would be a bigger issue if they're 45 and they're doing things to get things because then I didn't raise them right because everything is driven by motives. You know, I had a recently we had a, a repairman come to our house. Our, our air conditioner was, wasn't working, and so the air conditioner guy came to the house. But So he wouldn't come, and so we're trying to get him over there. And finally he came, and he was just a little fella. He's a little fella. And so when he came over there, 
the, the air conditioner is in the attic. And so there's like a space between the attic and to get up there. And he didn't bring a big enough ladder. He needed like a 15-foot ladder. He's a little fella. He needed, so he looked at me as he's getting in there. And, and he looked at me like, hey, you're going to go up in the attic? I'm like, I called you. I'm not getting up in the attic. So anyway, he had to postpone. He had to come back. But what was amazing, when he came back the next time, he was a servant. He came back, he brought the right ladder, and he got up into the attic to fix the air conditioner. You know when my girls come home, they don't, they don't ask to come in. They just come in at will. They don't ask if they can get into the refrigerator. No, they just dig in that refrigerator and eat whatever they want. You know why? Because they're my daughters, and I'm their dad, and they don't have to ask me out of motives of their heart. If they really understood that, they can get whatever they want because I'm their daddy. And because I'm their daddy, they can have whatever they want and whatever their mom wants to give them because they are our children. See, that's how God sees his children. You are his son and you are his daughter. You don't have to have motives begging something to get something. You don't have to live that way. I'll do this, God, if you do that. God, I'll serve you if you heal my son. God, I'll serve you. If you take this addiction from me, God, I'll serve you. If you'll take that man from me. No, just stop talking to him. No, I'll serve you, God, if you'll do this. See, those are wrong motives. She's not doing to get. When we live like that, when we don't live with motives, God starts to do amazing things in our life. Stuff begins to happen. She wasn't asking for a prophetic word. What do most people do? They come to church because they want something. They want something, so they come, and that's why they want this, they want that. Give me a prophetic word. Give me this. Give me that. A lot of times people come because they want money or they want certain things. Not every time, but you know what I'm saying. A lot of times it's motive-driven because if they were honest, they were, they were raised in a church environment where everything was predicated upon works. If you do this, and if you do that, and if you serve God, then you'll get this, this, and that. But that's not how God operates. I don't operate like that with my girls. Why? Because they're my children. They're my daughters. They don't have to do to get. But, you know, they're immature right now. So they think that that's the motive operando. You know what I'm talking about. That's what they get to get. And, and a lot of times, Daddy just does it because he loves them. I'm not naive to the game. I put on a front like, I'm the, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm playing the role. I know they're doing it to get on their mom's nerves. <laughs> but she's not asking for this, this blessing. Think about this as we get ready to close our time. She just wanted to create a place where the presence of God and the man of God would be there. Proverbs 18.24 says, He that shows himself friendly, must, or show, or he who wants a friend must show himself first friendly. We know that verse, don't we? We know the latter part of the verse. For he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We always know that refers to Jesus. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But we forget that part, that we have to show ourselves friendly first. I don't believe that's talking about building relationships with you all, one another. I think it's talking about you and I have to show ourselves friendly to God first. I'm a friend of God. Remember that song back in the day? I'm a friend of God. God calls me his friend. But I have to show myself friendly to receive that friendship. Because if he shows yourself friendly, you'll get a friend. If you show yourself grouchy, guess who you are? Oscar. You're grouchy. You show yourself as stingy, nobody's going to eat with you. Because we're not wanting to pay for you to eat all the time. 
But if you want to show yourself friendly, you got to start first in that hub to God, to God. That's the verse. It says, I want friendship with God. That friendship with God is not based on a need of what I want. If you do this, I do that. And if you see, that's religion. That's denominationalism. That's what many people have been taught. You do this, you do that. And then we use this term, and I hate the term, and I even said it earlier, so I apologize. I said it earlier, but I said, serve God. You don't serve God. You're not a slave. My children don't serve me. Jennifer doesn't serve me. I serve her. Isn't that right, baby girl? But we don't, we're here to serve one another. That's what the scriptures say. We're to serve one another. But we're not here to serve God. God lives through us. That hub. It took me a lot of years. I know I look hecka young. But it took me a lot of years to realize that. Because I was like some of you. I wasn't raised in church, I had no church background, but because of things I was taught and modeled to me, I live with this, and being an athlete, I live with this, you know, if I do that, I'm gonna get rewarded that. If I do this, I'm gonna get that. And I know there's biblical truth in it, where we what we sow, I mean, I understand all that, but I'm saying the core of this thing, the hub of this thing, has to really be a friendship room. Not a crisis room, not a panic room, a friendship room. Not doing something to get, not motive driven. Oh my gosh, please don't be the, the person that, that goes with the banner, God hates you and all that stuff and, and, and say you go to Oasis Church, I'll kick you out. It's like the guy years ago that called me and says, uh, you need to come down and boycott this, you know, down there. And, and he's, we're down there with banners boycotting. I'm like, you don't reach anybody with the love of God boycotting? And I understand there's things, but my point is, God, people already know they're messed up. 99.9% .9 of people know they're jacked up, tore up from the floor up. They know. We don't have to remind them. But very few people get told of what they can become. Very few people get told, you're amazing. You can do all things. You can accomplish great things. But see, that has to start within you, out of a personal friendship room with God out of a hub, out of a hub. I believe God does something amazing here, but he's showing us that when we show ourselves friendly, when we have friendship with God, not out of a need what we want, but desiring just to be with him. That's what the woman does. She shows herself friendly and the prophet responds. I believe God does the same thing. He shows herself friendly and it's proof she doesn't want visits anymore. She wants habitation. She wants him to stay. I believe God shows up when we have that same heart. Listen to 2 Kings 4.11. And it happened one day. He came there and he turned into the chamber and he lied there. The very thing she hoped for. The very thing that she had no guarantee of. But it happened. The man of God stopped in and he he stayed there. It, she builds this room out of friendship. She builds it not out of motives to ask, not out of motives of wanting something if he comes, but because she wants the presence of God. And because she wants the presence of God, the next thing is staggering to me. He calls her in and says, what can I do for you? And what's even greater about the story, she says, I'm good. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. 
I don't need anything. If someone had the means to get you out of debt, to heal you of all your ills, to get your children where they need to go, do you have the strength and the courage enough if they came to you and said, what can I do for you? To say, I'm good. I'm good. Because you see a bigger picture. Jennifer and I recently had lunch with a gentleman that is very successful, very, very influential. And he asked for us to come over and have lunch with him and meet with him. An hour meeting turned into a five hour meeting. And he was just fascinated with, he wasn't a believer, but he was fascinated with our life, my life, Jennifer's life, our children. He asked us, how in the world did you do the church and to that city center? He was just overwhelmed how you started that and how you made that a reality because he's a numbers man. He knows that mathematics, there's no, there's no lion in it. It either works or it doesn't work. And he was amazed. And he says, you know, you two are an inspiration. You're an inspiration. But you know, I left that meeting that day and I didn't tell him what we have need of. I didn't say, hey, you should. <laughs> I had somebody that I, we were talking to. I said, yeah, we had lunch with. And their response was, oh, I hope you get them in your back pocket. What's the point of that statement? Motives. Motives. You see, all of our motives get checked. My motive had to be checked that day. I don't believe you get meetings with people like that if God knows you're going to have a motive behind it. Because my thought is, and this is a real one, if I could have anything from him, I would like to have experience of his life. Because if I can get some of his life, I can know what it took to make him successful and what it took to cause pain and trouble in his life, things to avoid and things to take on far more than one monetary gift and see that's what many people don't understand when it comes to God there's far more than one monetary gift or one healing or one deliverance or one thing God's looking for relationship he's not working for an overnight fling see some of you live with the fling mentality I'm gonna hook up I'm gonna hook up I'm gonna hook up and God's not wanting a fling He's not wanting you to try this church, try that church, go over there to Yuck Yuck's church, and then go over there, come for deliverance here, come over here. Come. He's not looking for that. And I'm not looking for that. He's looking for you and I to build relationship out of this hub. And then the spokes that need to be attentive to, if something requires a little more time, we'll take a little more time. If something could be okay for a while, we'll let that be. But the point is it's driven out of relationships not out of motives. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, you, your heavenly father knows what you have need of before you ask it. She never even asked for a son, but he gives her the desires of her heart. She says, no, I'm good. And here the prophet says, no, no, I've got something for you because God knew the desires of her heart. She needed a son and that son came. And now that son is old enough to reap and do work and to be a benefit to the family. And here comes the enemy. The miracle now is stricken uh, struck and, and begins to die. The miracle child is born and now it's about to die just because it's a miracle and just because it's God-given it doesn't mean it's immune from satanic activity 
As a matter of fact, that means there, there's a, that means it's of God when it gets attacked. Many times you're looking at, oh, everybody's against me. The enemy's against me. You're binding and loosening and God's going, I got all this under control. Why are you fretting? Why are you worried? Why are you downcast? The miracle of Jesus comes right into attack. Remember when the baby was born in Bethlehem? Remember the decree that Herod sent out? Every child in the region must die. What's the point? Just because we pray, just because we fast, just because we sacrifice, just because we give, it doesn't mean the battle is over. The enemy's not finished. He's just reloading, and this enemy strikes the answer to prayer. And what God births out of a friendship room, just when it's old enough to grow and be a benefit, it's attacked. The enemy comes and attacks the miracle baby on the first day of the harvest. Your miracle will be attacked on the first day of the harvest. That which is birthed in this church, that which is birthed in your home and your life, birthed in prayer, birthed in your intercession, that which is birthed with sacrifice, that which is birthed out of waiting for seasons to change and waiting for the child and waiting for the marriage and waiting for the business. Now it's attacked and now you have an opportunity. You find this thing dying, holding it in your arms, this miracle, and you have an opportunity to do what this lady does. She gives us the key. You ready for it? Here it is. It's verse 21. It go, she goes up. The key to the whole story, in my opinion, she takes the miracle up. She takes it to the chamber, the friendship room. That's the whole changing and turning of the story. She didn't say, you know, it's good to have this boy for 10 to 11 years, and maybe we'll have Elijah do the funeral. Maybe we'll have him come, and we'll have him officiate the service. No, there's a choice we all make. When we have this beautiful miracle blessing and the, and the miracle and blessings attacked, you can do what this woman does, take it up, or you can take it down with what you have in your arms. See, that's a choice that we all make. Thank God she went up. She didn't write the obituary. She wasn't writing the, the inscription on the headstone. She got up from the place, shuts the door, and goes to the place that's already been prepared. It's already been prepared before the battle, before the fight. No crisis room. It's a friendship room. Oh, what do we do? We just build the crisis room. Panic room! God says, no, no. I'm not the God of panic. I'm Jehovah Shalom. I'm the God of peace. I'm the God of peace. She didn't build the chamber after everything collapsed. The friendship room is where you and I run into that's higher than I. It's the rock of our salvation. If you've already understand what I say today, I'm telling you that God has put in all of us because of this wonderful new covenant, a place where he resides in us, where more than a savior has come, Lord, where he becomes our all in all, our burden bearer, our high tower, our friend, and our deliverer, and our ever help in a time of trouble because he's present. But you have to get beyond the doing to get mentality. Give me this so I can do that. If you do this, then I'll do that. If you pray for me and give me a prophetic word and touch me and pray for me, I'll fall down, I'll get back up, I'll be healed. If you do this, then I'll do that. Got to get beyond that immature stuff and get to a place where God, if you knock me out in the spirit, I'll stay down until you tell me to get up.
If you fill me with fire and passion, I'll let it be spread, not out of a motive, so people can hear me preach. Nobody wants to hear you preach. They want to know you love them. We got too many people walking around thinking they're going to preach the world right. You need to love one another. One of the things that we're here to do is love one another. Maybe your miracle needs a miracle. Let's think about this in closing. My desire for us to get crazy on calling on God as we are about getting hold of other people. You know, some of you have so many social platforms, so many different numbers of people, so many different ways to text, Instagram, uh, snapper chatter, and all the Twitters, and all of the things you get a hold of people. How about changing the direction, all the ways you get a hold of people, flip it and do that to get a hold of God. Do that to get a hold of God. But there has to be a place of friendship. Has to be a place of friendship. Let me close with this. Is it well with you? Verse 26. Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she declares, it is well. It is well. Her son has just died. The man of God, I just asked her, the dead child's in the chamber, but yet she's at peace. The word well means shalom. Is everything at peace? It is at peace. In the midst of the storm, it's at peace. In the midst of death, it's at peace. In the midst of a loss of a dad, a loss of a son, a loss of a family, a loss of a marriage, a loss of this miracle, I'll take it to the friendship room and it is well. My miracle needs a miracle, but I'll take it to the place that I know where he dwells and it will be well with me and well with my soul. You received that today? Hallelujah. Can we stand together? all over the building as we stand together there are two categories of people in this room today those who need to build a friendship room not a crisis room not a panic room not a doing to get room not a works room motives room but a friendship room that's that means something different to a, a lot of us i wouldn't say well how do you build it i'm not gonna your friendship room might be a little different than mine the way I seek the Lord is probably different from some of you guys. The way, I, the way I receive from God is maybe a little different than the way some of you. Always through the Word, of course. Always through that channel. But there's other ways. My point is, I'm not going to tell you today, do this, do this, do this, do this to build that room. I will say, check your motives. And build something that absolutely has no motive other than relationship to strengthen that hub and how that looks is between you and God and I want you to know there's a place for God to dwell in you that will take all that hurt all that pain all that discouragement all that frustration that cannot be accomplished with people because they will let you down don't get hooked on anybody but Jesus they'll all let you down this bald amigo included you have to place yourself in a friendship room. And that's some of us. That's one type of person. But the other type is this person. It's the other one that's here and there are dead things. Miracles that God has given you. They're dead or they're dying. You're holding them. Whether that's inside or outside. Maybe a sickness has come back. Maybe an issue with the marriage. An issue with your finances. Maybe there's an issue going on with your, your children. 
You're holding this thing. It's dying in your arms. Maybe in you or upon you. You have an opportunity today to either bury it or if you've already buried it, get a shovel and dig it back up. Because what was given to you as a miracle, God wants you to establish it and keep it as a miracle. But sometimes it needs life and breath again.